Many of us have talked about wellness so much that it's made us, well, not well. But what has actually worked, what hasn't, and where is wellness going today? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On more than one occasion, we've talked about wellness on the podcast. And, and as advisors, we all talk about it. But the question is, what's worked? What hasn't worked? How did all of this start? And where's it going, which is maybe the more important question. And to answer those and hopefully some other questions, we've invited Ed Buckley, chairman and CEO of PeerFit, to join us on the podcast this morning. Welcome, Ed. Well, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Let's go all the way back and try to level set. Where did this whole wellness thing start? Because, I mean, I've been in the business since 81, Some of our listeners have equal or longer experience, and wellness wasn't always a thing. So where did it start? That's such a great question. I mean, if you think back 10, 20, 30 years, the workplace was smoking indoors. Heck, you could have whiskey at your desk if you wanted to and have some drinks, right? Probably the opposite is as we think of it as wellness. And as we started to carve out those behaviors companies started thinking about, well, if smoking was bad in the workplace and we're cutting out, what are other things that we could do to make our employees healthier or happier? And really at the late 90s, early 2000s, this is when this idea of worksite wellness started taking hold at scale. I can remember my undergraduate degree at the University of Florida. My thesis was on Fortune 500 companies that were advertising worksite wellness, what they were doing. They were producing worksite wellness reports. How were they being more socially responsible? Was there a medical ROI? And that's where I think it all started was they wanted to go and see if they could get medical claims ROI. And as it's evolved, you've seen that there's a lot of other things that people are measuring to determine success. Well, and so that gave way to certain models. So if it started with smoking, I suspect that smoking secession programs and maybe walking programs were next. How did that actually get put into practice? Yeah, you know, pedometers have been around for a really long time. They're fairly cheap, easy to give out. Almost, you know, most of the population can use them. And and that's really where it started. You know, the HR team was giving out pedometers. They were doing walking challenges but you know how long can that be sustainable how long can that be engaging for a population you know they they had stair challenges where you know they'd see how many times you could do but a lot of it was self reported if you think you know late 90s early 2000s we were in the age of you know the web becoming 
something ubiquitous, let alone we hadn't quite gotten to mobile technology the way that we had today. So, you know, I would say those were the tried and true methods were all about walking challenges, those early kind of simple predometers. And and what we started cutting our teeth on a little bit was, could I subsidize people's big box gym memberships? That really was something new. The idea that worksite wellness didn't happen on the worksite, that they would be willing to pay for you to do something when you left the office. That was a fairly novel concept at the time. And so that was all exercise driven. Where did where did the smoking secession programs come in? Was that kind of low hanging fruit that folks thought they'd attack first? Yeah, I think what they saw was physical activity while something a lot of people asked about, right? And that's a nice to have. People want that. Smoking cessation was a need to have. They knew that that was one of their main drivers of medical claims cost. And and the difference is if David, I get you to start exercising. I might not see the ROI on that for years, or maybe I stop you from becoming, you know, an at-risk population. Generally speaking, if you're already a smoker, depending on how often and how frequent you do it, you're already at risk. So that that's the difference between need and want, right? When you're doing a needs assessment, and frankly, that's why needs assessment are so important. Maybe you look at your population and you only have, you know, three to 5% smokers, Okay, so maybe not, maybe smoking cessation is not something you should invest in, but let's imagine you've got a blue collar population and you've got 50 to 60% smokers. That's something that you need to invest in. So we talked today about issues around compliance and participation. Were those issues back in those early days of the physical exercise program and the smoking cessation programs? No. I mean, think of the evolution of sophistication in any program, right? When you first roll out a program, you're just happy to have it. You're kind of shooting from the hip. You're not approaching it too scientifically with how it's working, what parameters should be used, what the compliance of all that is. I mean, if you think about some of the challenges we've had from the legal side of worksite wellness and whether you're you know, equally being fair to all different types of populations, that's been in the last five years that we've seen these, these legal challenges. You know, I remember speaking at a conference, gosh, it must've been, you know, 2014, 2015, when there was some really, you know, heavy hitting legal precedent set on, you know, equal opportunity inside of worksite wellness and how you do incentives and rewards. So, you know, we're almost 20 years into what I would consider the worksite wellness era. And it took, you know, 15 of them before we started getting into really sophisticated compliance issues. Today, we hear a lot about well-being. So while we're talking about kind of the evolution of wellness programs, where did that come from? What does it mean? And is it a distinction without a difference or is it really something different than traditional wellness programs? You know, it's interesting because formally, right, my PhD is in the health behavior side. And I can remember in my earliest days talking about what does it mean to be well? And this definition from an academic stance is, well, it means that it's the not just the absence of an illness, but it really almost means that you're thriving, right? It's kind of how we looked at it. And that's where this idea is, what does it mean to be well? Does it simply mean you're not doing negative health behaviors? Or does it actually mean that you're thriving towards your optimal state of health? And that's generally, as you talk about, you know, the state of well-being, it is your optimal state of health on a lot of different parameters, right? It's not just physical 
It's physical, emotional, social, financial, right? Financial has been a big trend we've seen inside of worksite wellness. And so, you know, that's where I think employers and really the consumer industry is trying to help consumers get to is how do I find one of those niches inside of optimal well-being and, and help you achieve your maximum potential? So at that point, is there a way for advisors to talk to prospects and clients about a demonstrable, repeatable return on investment? That is an amazing question that we could spend an hour talking about. When we talk to employers, when we talk to consultants, brokers, and and even the carriers, 10, 15 years ago, ROI meant only one thing. It meant medical claims ROI, and could you tie direct correlation between your program and that? Well, then as we got smarter, we realized it takes three to five years and you can't even have a strong correlation because there's so many other factors. What we've seen in the industry is wellness programs are now just as much about employee engagement as they are about actually making you well and healthy. And if the program can engage employees, get them with each other, get them wanting to be at work more often, well, now that drives to retention. It drives to attracting new talent, the best talent. And that seems to be, in my opinion, what worksite wellness has become more than anything. Our society has become more health conscious and health focused in the last two decades. Thus, that is a great benefit. It is something that will attract, you know, the modern elite employee more so than just a standard benefit. So, so, you know, it becomes a, well, if, if I'm going to work at a place that I consider the best place to work, worksite wellness is a must have because the consumers view it as a must have. So what kind of communication do you do with employees to start getting engagement to bring about awareness? You know, what I always tell everyone, whether it's, you know, peer fit or, or any other thing is education just doesn't work, right? If it does, then I don't know how we've all missed it for the last 50 years, but simply educating people at being healthy, you know, and doing these things is good for them, isn't going to make them do it. When you look at human behavior and actually how to manipulate it, rarely is telling them the good thing to do the way to get them to do it. I mean, think about just you and your friends. And if all of a sudden everyone wants to go do something and you're being left out, even if it was something you didn't want to do, now you want to do it. And I think that social element, using positive peer pressure, using FOMO, has a stronger result in driving the you know enrollment in worksite wellness programs than simply saying, hey, here it is. It's great. I've done everything for you. I think you've got to be able to drive a little bit of that FOMO and almost competitiveness from people that generally aren't even competitive. So it's an interesting balance of reducing barriers but almost putting some pressure on them simultaneously. So there aren't barriers to walk, but I'm going to put some pressure behind you to make sure you do start walking forward down this path. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. And over that time, They've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. 
Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health's solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. So, carrot or stick, how important are rewards? We hear an awful lot about employers who are offering rewards and even some who are amending their SPDs if they're partially self-insured to provide those kinds of awards. I know the government stuck its nose in how you can do that and how much you can do to an employee at a compliance level or at a participation level, if you prefer that term. How important are incentives? You know, this is where my CEO hat and my behavioral researcher hat, I'll kind of swap between them. There are all types of studies that show when carrots are better than sticks and sticks are better than carrots. But I think at the end of the day, as a general rule of thumb, you need a little bit of both. You need to have a really tight lane for someone to say, I'm going to make it really easy for you to take one half step to your right and there's a world of rewards for you. However, on your left, I'm going to make sure you're bumping up against pressure that is that stick to make sure that you feel that there is a consequence from not participating. And maybe that consequence is something like, you know, I don't want to say embarrassment, but almost that social pressure that I'm going to feel left out if I don't participate. You know, I've always thought that if you make something that everyone participates in really great for them to participate and then show the evidence of that, you know, basking in glory back to everyone who didn't participate, the next time that option's around, they felt that and they're going to want to come, right? You didn't punish them, but you showed them what happens when they don't participate in terms of their being left out. I think that is one of the strongest determinants that you can get for long-term adherence. And frankly, when you look at you know, why a lot of people have longevity in different wellness activities. The first 30 days is one set of criteria and day 31 and on is generally the opposite criteria, right? The thing that gets you in is one thing. And then after you get in it for a couple of weeks and build your habit, now it's all an internal metric. The first 30 days was all external. Am I being seen? Am I getting pats on the back? Do I get instant gratification? Once you've you've got me in there for you know 30 days, it's all on me. I'm coming back because I want to. So, Well, and that's some of the new models that are coming to market, including yours. How, how do you structure, if you're an employer, how do you structure a program that creates that social pressure? Oh, man. Well, it, it really depends what kind of resources you have. You know, I think that there are a number of, of great free little niche apps that you could leverage but everything you do has to be able to scale personalization, right? You have to be able to do it with as minimal of a HR wellness benefit staff as possible, I think. You know, there are larger employers that have really big budgets, but more money certainly doesn't equal more success. I think this is the simplest solution is sometimes the best. Figure out what people want, give it to them, and and make sure that you have the parameters of things at scale. I mean, I'm, you know cross-promotion here, I'm, I'm drinking out of a Virgin Pulse cup while I'm talking to you today, right? They've done a great job with understanding how to incentivize employees. It's not a free program, right? You're going to pay for that if you use it, but now you don't have to build all that internally. I think more often than not, employers are better getting third-party vendors and trying to 
you know, reinvent the wheel. There's people out there, you know, like a Virgin Pulse who, who've become experts in exactly what they do. Are you going to try to build that inside your own, you know, house and assume that you're going to do a better job or, you know, like PeerFit, we've done an amazing job understanding how to leverage that social side to get people to go work out in groups together from people that would ordinarily not be physically active. Do you think that you can replicate that for less effort than what we've built? Probably not. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Virgin because, as you know, they cut their teeth running health clubs in the UK and South Africa. And then quite some years ago, they partnered up with Humana to start making their presence known in the United States in a kind of different way. But how much does that health club experience, I know that's something that you guys are working with, you, you talked earlier about subsidizing big box health clubs and, and helping people do stuff in that kind of a format. How important is knowing what goes on at those clubs and understanding how to leverage that in order to make it a great experience that folks want to go and do? You know, to be frank, I, I'm not entirely sure that that's what has driven their success, for instance, right? I mean, they, they really keep those two branches of Virgin separate. And the group that runs Virgin Pulse and runs that incentive platform is, is, is fairly different from the one that runs the, you know, the health club side. For us, I'm the CEO of the company and I came from the fitness side while doing the behavioral research side. So it gave me the understanding of how important we had to treat those clubs. We had seen how poorly they had been treated, you know, from those deal hunter sites, you know, back in the day. I mean, think, you know, the reimbursement rates they got from Groupon and ClassPass and some of those others, you know, we wanted to make sure that we treated them the right way and felt like we were their advocate. So, you know, I don't think it's impossible, but, you know, at the same time, I'll, I'll talk about another party, right? Mind Body. They've been in the news recently. They're a public company, got taken private, and they know everything about the studio side. Absolutely everything. That's what they represent. That's their bread and butter. And yet we work with them because we know the healthcare side. They have all the position to do that, but we have the subject matter expertise. And that's why that became such a good fit. So just because you know all about the healthcare side doesn't mean you can build that bridge. It's a joke I always say. It's a billion-dollar bridge between healthcare and fitness. Both sides are screaming across the valley and telling them, hey, you build the bridge to me. And while they were doing that, we came in and built the bridge to say, yeah, we'll do this for you. Nice, nice. So if I'm an advisor... How do I have a conversation about wellness with a prospect or a client who's never dipped their toe in those waters? And, and, and what kind of savings might I offer, might I promise them? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think the first thing that they ask them is, what are you hoping to achieve? What does success mean for you in wellness? Once again, do you just want to see people enrolled and happier? Do you want to actually try to measure health outcomes? You know, what does success mean for you? What does your population find that they want and need? You know, I always caution people to never just throw out there what you think is great. Find, figure out what you think your population truly wants and needs. And I think one of the earliest wins that they'll see from a financial sense is if if employers and brokers go to carriers with a good ask, hey, my population needs this you know, platform solution service. We want to do this. Here's what we're looking for. You know, more often than not, carriers have money allocated for those types of things. They have wellness funds that go out there. Not everyone utilizes them. Not everyone who gets those funds actually even use them. But, you know, that first, I'd say, when you can get in a, in a short time frame is if you want to do a wellness program, 
ask your broker to get or your advisor to, to talk to your carrier and, and see if there's money set aside for that so that your investment isn't even your own money. Talk about an ROI. You get anything, right? It's you're playing with house money at that point. So that's that's what I would say. Other than that, you know, you want to look at periodic, you know, goalposts of what you deem to be success. Was it enrollment? Was it engagement? Was it, you know, the satisfaction employees have at your workplace now? But it's all going to be varying depending on what type of an employer on what, you know, your leadership wants to see. We have about a minute or so left, and, and oftentimes we'd like to ask our guests, especially in fields that are evolving, such as yours, what do you see in the future? What do you see in the near term and in the long term in the field of, of wellness or well-being, or pick your particular word? I think that you're going to see a really strong blend between traditionally enterprise services and direct-to-consumer services, things that you would have never thought coming into the workplace and companies that were traditionally just workplace, I really think you're going to see this blurred lines from these outstanding consumer grade products and these people who've already, you know, owned the distribution funnel inside of enterprise in ways that you're starting to already see. That's what I see. You're going to see worksite wellness go from people, you know, rolling their eyes because they think it's watered down to as good as they could get, maybe even better out on the consumer market. Well, it's certainly a great story to tell, and we hope you'll come back and chat with us as the field evolves. Ed Buckley, Chairman and CEO of PeerFit. Ed, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for being a Shift Shaper. Thank you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. 